Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 7th, 2021, and my guest is author and psychologist Michael McCullough of the University of California, San Diego. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is The Kindness of Strangers, How a Selfish Ape Invented a New Moral Code. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me, Russ. I've really been looking forward to this for a while, so thanks for having me. So the fundamental question of this book is why do we help strangers? Uh, Why do we care about the poor when they're not related to us? And your book starts with an exploration of the evolutionary possibilities for that phenomenon. Uh, The fact that your subtitle says how a selfish ape invented a new moral code suggests that that approach is not going to be entirely successful. But why don't you start by talking about the evidence that there might be a genetic basis for our, an evolutionary natural selection basis for our compassion? Sure. Well, one of the things that bothered even Darwin was how, how it is that we came to take an interest in other organisms, period. Um, it seemed to him from the outset a loser in the eyes of natural selection for you to pay costs in order, be, in order to benefit other creatures. So um, this remained a, a puzzle, uh, not a mystery so much as a, you know something that people threw up their hands and said, well, we'll, we will never figure this out, but a puzzle to be solved. And um, it ultimately got solved definitively um, in the 1960s, um, although the hints were there through evolutionary biology through most of the 20th century. But it came down to a couple of theorists to show how a gene that creates a benefit in another, that produces a benefit for an individual at a cost to the benefactor could actually become more frequent, become more common in the gene pool due to the action of natural selection. And one way, obviously, you can do that is by taking an interest in the welfare of your relatives um, who happen to have the odds of sharing that gene in, in their bodies as well. So when that gene causes you to raise their welfare, you're, you know, plausibly increasing the, their genetic welfare as well. Another way we do it is through friendship or through reciprocity. Um, If I provide a benefit, you know, if I uh, sell high and buy low, um, then um, we can get essentially get the gains of trade. Um, I help you today at a relatively cheap cost to me. You get a big benefit. And the next time then the shoe's on the other foot, you provide a benefit to me that's, you know, sort of cheap to you to provide, but really beneficial to me. And natural selection will favor a psychology that promotes that kind of, you know, reciprocity over time. The interesting part about those genetic explanations, and I think um, I don't see this discussed very much, and you may not have anything you want to say about it, but it, it's it's easy to say a gene that favors your relatives over strangers. But you have to really provide a mechanism for how that could be genetically driven. In other words, it's pretty clear that in the animal kingdom, for sure, and I'm sure in the human species as well, 
uh, a mother can recognize its its child uh, in all kinds of complicated ways, in ways that we can as humans. You know, uh, I forget the name of it, but the movie about penguins, the animated film about penguins. You know, mom knows what they all saved us, but the mom knows which one's hers, and vice versa. The child can find its mom, the offspring can find its mom. But it seems to me that the, the idea that oh, a gene that only looks at close relatives. Well, that, that might be hard for a gene to actually achieve. Now, you can you can always tell a just-so story. Well, but if a gene could do it, it'd be good. Yeah, I agree. But, uh, you know, I, or a gene that said help lots of people, which doesn't work so well, as you, you know, that, that's not so good. A gene, be generous, give away lots of stuff. Again, whether a gene could do that or not. But I think the the tricky part of this is is, is to say, a gene that urges you to feel good about helping other people uh, when they're close relatives isn't so straightforward. Do you, you see my point? I never yeah. see this discussed. It's always just like there's a lot of hand waving. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. And it sure. turns out genes are really complicated. Like there isn't a gene even for things like height or you know, things that we think of as pure genetics. There's multiple genes. There's interactions. So this idea that you know we have this subtle gene that would – that would say, oh, he's a third cousin. I won't deal with that one. I don't know. It just seems like a bit of a, uh, a little too simple. Sure. sure. And I, I get where you're coming from. I mean, there's a, you bring up a couple of really interesting issues. Uh, I mean, and they're really rich issues. One is the, is the question of whether there are genes for things. Yeah. And I mean, we can all agree, I think, that genes exert causal effects on how our bodies and minds turn out. You know, sure. um, that, you know, that doesn't necessarily, you know, entail the conclusion that it's a gene for that. But we, we do end up, I think, inevitably playing kind of needing to play a trick on ourselves. And if we're going to talk about natural selection, we, we almost inevitably end up talking in this language of, you know, agency because genes are being selected for effects that promote the fitness. inclusive fitness of, of their bearers. So we all, you know, it's, you could, you could do that. You could, you could kind of trot out, you know, a, a per, linguistically perfect explanation that doesn't involve this concept of agency, but it's hard, you know, it's, it, it's a mouthful. So, so we end up kind of doing this, you know, hand wavy. Well, this is a gene for that because it, we believe it evolved because of those effects. So that's one really, I mean, I think that's a really rich point you make. Um, and, but you also make this point about how is a gene going to know, in, you know, back to agentic language, that, that it's, you know, supposed to be helping relatives. And I actually think this, the evidence that um, uh, organisms end up being kind of picky mm -hmm. about who they, who they provide benefits to, I, I think the evidence is, is, is good for that. Actually, even in humans, I think there's plenty of psychological and physiological reasons to think we we do have the capacity to be picky and we evolved the capacity to be picky yeah it, it it's it, it's very possible i i just feel like there's a certain um academic uh bent of that evolutionary psychology literature it's like let's see how far we can push this it just seems to me to be a simpler explanation which is really the i think the way I understand your book, which is we're basically self-interested. 
there, there is some non-self-interest, certainly for our relatives and friends, that, and excuse me, our close relatives that, that's biologically driven. But a lot of what drives us to be generous with our resources to strangers is cultural. Mm-hmm. It's something that we have passed on to our children, accepted from our parents, those around us are friends. And um, I, I think without that, it's kind of hard to explain a lot of the details in the real world. But what are your thoughts? Oh, I completely agree with you. I, I think that the answer to why we're kind to strangers, or why we take an interest in their in their well-being, is largely because of a kind of cultural ratchet that's been working over you know, many, many millennia, actually. Um, but that is interacting, you know, the, the, these twists and turns of history are interacting with an evolved psychology uh, that performs cognitive jobs for us. You know, I mean, you can think of the sort of the, uh, I mean, ultimately, I think a satisfying answer to any question about human behavior is going to have to invoke genetics, obviously. Um, but, well, Maybe that's not so obvious to everyone. <laughs> Invoke culture, obviously. Yeah, we're but not we're do... not robots, instinctually <laughs> driven in every aspect of our life. Right, right. Uh, so you know the cultural influences are enormous, but you do need a mind that's receptive to culture. You know, you do need a mind that's receptive to conversation. That's you know because not all minds in the world can do that. Human minds can do it, but um, you know. I mean, there, there are people who might disagree with me a little bit, but, you know, you're not going to find a, a dog mind that's well-tuned for cultural, cultural learning. Transmission. Yeah, agreed. You're right. So let's move, let's move to what I think is the, is the tricky part of this, which um, I'm not sure is, is in the book, which is I, I think the economist's way of writing about this is we're – which is – Totally sterile, by the way. So I just want to – I'm not going to defend it exactly the way I'm going to say it. But the economist's view is, well, we do things because they they make us feel good. Mm. Um, And I think that rather banal and hard-to-argue-with argument hides a lot of what is actually going on. So let's take the golden rule, which you spend a lot of time on, um, do unto others – as you would uh, have done to yourself. It's also the silver rule, which you didn't mention, but it's a, it's sort of the flip side. Don't do to other people what you wouldn't want done to you. And these ethical mottos, why do we follow them in your view? You, you talk about them as if it's, they're very important. Um, they became very important in, in Western, certainly in Western civilization and in Eastern civilization and elsewhere. Other religious precepts came into people's minds. Why do you think they're important? Well, I, I think um, the, reason they, the reason they became important, I think, is, is, is a really interesting story. And, and then we can talk about why they're sort of still important, why they have causal power now. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, the reason they became important is um, because uh, in the last few centuries, uh, before the Common Era, a variety of world religions popping up in um, uh, the Indus River Valley, um, the Yellow River Valley in China, um, ancient Israel, classical Greece, all uh, discovered, assembled, 
a new kind of religion and spirituality that was uh, more cosmopolitan, less tribal, uh, more universalizing, um, more uh, devoted to putting, uh, putting our moral preferences into law, you know, codifying our ethical intuitions or ethical, hard-won ethical experiences. Um, and in the midst of that, all of these traditions um, discovered, arrived at the idea that the way to be right with God was, you know, or to achieve enlightenment or um, satisfaction or, you know, spiritual well-being was through concern for everybody. Um, and uh, Karen Armstrong, the, the writer, she writes a lot about religion. Um, her, her way of describing this kind of ethical discovery is that somehow, you know, for spiritual fulfillment in all of these traditions, somehow you have to stretch your compassion so that it can embrace the entire world. So this was deeply yoked to spirituality, to um, sort of the formalizing of ethical thought in a way that we, people hoped would be generalizable, at least over the, you know, if not over the entire universe of human beings, at least the people in your civilization or your society. So that's how it came about originally. I mean, all of these details are lost to time, obviously. Um, but these are special, ex you know, these are exceptional changes in how people thought about compassion. And it was really yoked to spirituality in a deep way. And so the question I want to probe <clears throat> for a little bit, which is tricky, is to think about how self-interested and how altruistic that is. Because you can easily say, and this is, again, the way economists think, and I think it's wrong, but the way economists would describe it is, okay, well, nothing's really changed here. This is just self-interest rewritten because I want to go to heaven or I want to be right with God, the way you phrased it, which I like. Uh, so I do these things. I don't like them in and of themselves, but overall it's worth it because I want to get this other benefit. It's an investment. It's sure. no different than, uh, you know, putting away a few seeds for the winter to, to grow food next, next, next summer. And, and um, I think that's wrong, but I want you to react to that because that's not, I would not call that compassionate. Mm -hmm. um, I would call that uh, selfish actually. Mm -hmm, and and mm -hmm. I think it misses something, which I'll get to, but I'm, I want to hear you first talk about it. What's your reaction to that? I think a lot of the justification for um, the, the acceptance, at least, you know, honoring it in the breach, the, you know, the, this ex, 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 um, endorsement of the golden rule <clears throat> does have a really self-interested basis in history. Um, the idea that that this is, you know, as you say, this is what's going to get you into heaven, or this is what God expects, or this is, we discovered this secret about the fulfilled life, you know, and it involves care for other people. I think that really is deeply embedded uh, in how people took up the golden rule. Um, I mean, I, I think that's how people largely arrived at making it sensible, um, was in some way they saw it as a key to doing better, being better, being better off, even in these spiritual terms. Um, but I, I do think um, ultimately it got some of its teeth from a, uh, I, I, similarly, it, I think it is a self-interested motivation, but it's a, interestingly different self-interested motivation, which is the desire to be consistent with one's principles. Yeah. 
And that's a different kind of thing. It I is. mean, it's still very different. You know, uh, I mean, there's, um, you know, you can you can be interested in one's own well-being. In in principle, one could be deeply interested in a stranger's well-being, but you could help other people or have a conviction to help other people that's not driven by self-interest per se, and it's not driven by other interests, but instead it's driven by an interest in being consistent or faithful to a set of principles. And I think that's a really underappreciated moral motivation. It might be quite rare. Um, it might be something that's hard to study in the laboratory. In fact, we've tried on a couple of occasions to study the golden rule, and it's hard to study in the laboratory. But I, I think I, I want to help hold out the possibility that some of the time we take actions in the world, you know, not because it feels good or because, you know, we, we think there are going to be all these extrinsic rewards or because we deeply care about others. Although I think probably sometimes we do, but instead simply because we want to try to be faithful to some ideal that's important to us. Yeah. I think the way I would describe it is, you know, we have a sense of self, an identity of, of who we are that we want to live up to. And when we violate that, it, it feels bad. Uh, but I think this issue of uh, the intrinsic value or the principles of it, I, I think it's a little trickier because we don't always start that way. And I think as a uh, – you know, I'm somebody who – I came to religion later in my life. And I don't like going to the hospital. Uh, I find it scary, like many people, I think. Uh, and when I first got uh, – became a religious Jew, I learned that one of the obligations is to visit the sick. And I thought, well, I don't like that obligation. <laughs> I, maybe I'll skip, the, skip that one. But I decided I couldn't. And I, mm. I have visited – Many people in the hospital who I didn't want to go visit. Uh huh. Yeah. But but that experience changed over time. Mm. Now you could argue, oh yeah, well, you started to enjoy it because you thought God wanted you to, or you were supposed to get right with God. But something else happened, which is for me, and I you know I think this is somewhat universal among these kind of phenomena. I actually started to enjoy it. Now mm. I can't really. I'm not the right judge of why I enjoy it. I, you know, I've got a self-narrative. I've got my sense of self we just talked about. And, and it's, and I'm just telling the story it makes you feel kind of silly. It's like, oh, this is doing bragging about he likes visiting people in the hospital, which is a whole <laughs> part of this as well, right? The way I, I see others, people seeing me, which is well, another part of my self-identity. Yeah. But my point is that I, I think, you know, I gave an example of someone coming to religion later Children come back to our nature nurture discussion. It comes so natural to them to share their candy, <laughs> and <laughs> and I think the acculturation of parenting, religion, values, ethics, humanism, whatever you want to use in your family, you, you try to teach your children often to in, not just to do it, but to enjoy doing it. Ultimately, <laughs> which it doesn't start that way. Well, that that's right. Yeah, I mean some of. So- <laughs> I mean, there's an interesting, the, the, the trajectory of moral development and the internalization of principles is super interesting. You know, we, young children uh, don't have the capacity to internalize principles at a really deep level. 
Um, but as we age, we can, um, let's say by the time we're sort of to uh, middle childhood, we can begin to understand justifications for why. We can give accounts for why certain things are good and bad. Much earlier than that, you can teach children that certain things are good and, and certain things are bad. And they'll get rewards, praise, you know, blame, if, if, praise if they do them, blame if they don't, disapproval if they don't. Um, but the, the internalization of principles comes later. And I, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that, you know, lots and lots of people have talked about, um, the power of norms in, as, as regulators, sort of autonomous regulators of human beings, is really important. And, you know, often what happens, we, we, we think, um, is that norms have a kind of self-government to them. Yeah. Or they, or they enable a kind of self-government. Um, you, um, wow. what, what we can do is represent ideals and um, evaluate whether we're getting better at approaching those ideals or whether we're steering you know, away from them. And, and this allows us to regulate our behavior in ways that I don't think any other animal can do. So part, so part of that is you have an ideal. Um, it doesn't feel great, but you either, you know, by bearing down and pushing through and trying to be faithful to that, you know, you're, we get tougher, you know, there's a toughening process. Yeah. So it, bec it becomes easier. It's just like lifting weights or something yeah. like that. Um, but as, as, as well, you, uh, things become habits and we can put them on autopilot you know, so so the, the interesting thing about norms or a desire to be faithful to a principle is, you know, you do things out of effort, out of a hope that someday it'll become easier or simply you'll just, like, it's the right thing to do. But they do become easier. And then at some point, you know, you ask people like, well, why do you, you know, why do you visit people in the hospital? And you're just like, I don't know. That's what I do on Saturday, yeah. uh, you know, Saturday afternoons. That's just, that's my thing now. Yeah. You know, some people might go, you know, work in a, you know, go do drama, you know, or go play, play bridge. Why? Well, it's, it's fun. It's just it's the thing I do on Saturday afternoons. The, the problem with that, of course, is that I, I could go out and, 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 and go to a crowded area and do some pickpocketing, which would be both um, natural to take money from strangers and rewarding. Uh, I'm going to have lots of stuff I can enjoy after I've taken <laughs> the money. And yet, you don't think that's a good idea if I asked you. My parents would be horrified. My children would be ashamed. Um, for me, the question is, why is it then in the – and you, you write about this in, in many different angles. As religion has receded as the source of the motivation for some of this, this ethical behavior, replaced by Kantian ethics, which – I suspect most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about the categorical imperative. We're not, we don't need That's to right. go, we don't need to go into it, but nobody literally says, you know, I, I wasn't sure what to do. I picked up my Kant and Manuel Kant and I saw, I shouldn't pickpocket. So, so the challenge then is in the absence of this, you know, I don't, religion doesn't leave behind a genetic footprint to continue to inspire people after they don't believe in it anymore. People who are who don't believe in religion, which is a relatively large group of people, many of them are still ethical. 
Yeah. Just like the religious people who aren't ethical. But many re- irreligious, a-religious, atheistic, agnostic folks don't think it's a good idea to be a pickpocket. Why? Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's the challenge. Like, aren't they well, suckers? That, you know, we say, well, they get admiration. Why don't we look down on it and say, what a fool. He could have had that money and he just missed his chance. Well, we, we, I think through history, we have arrived at certain principles. Some of them have been, dis- you know, I, I like to call them ethical discoveries. I know a lot of people don't like that idea, but um, we, we just, you know, we discover a principle. We discover the golden rule. Um, this would be a good thing to do. God wants it. The Lord wants it. It's good for you. Um, and we begin to, I think, build institutions designed to make fulfilling those principles easier. Uh, humanitarianism, you know, would be a, a more modern example. What's what's humanitarianism? It's this idea that we try to help on the solely on the basis of need and nothing else. You know, it's a universalizing sort of it, it, you know um, instinct or inclination. You find need, you try to meet it. Doesn't matter if the person is, you know, voted for another president than you did, or you know, and so on. Uh, what's the justification for that? Well. You ask historians, Historians, uh, you ask Michael Barnett, who's done a great history of humanitarianism, and he can tell you the, the, the entire natural history of that idea. People don't care about the natural history of that idea. They, have a, they get, they get, they get um, th- what they find is through the, the actions of their parents, the moral instruction of their parents, exposure to inspiring stories, narratives of other people. They hear justifications sometimes for these, you know, for these imperatives. Sometimes they don't. They just hear it's right or it's wrong. Um, But they internalize the norm. And then the norm, the behavior can become unmoored from its justification, from its ethical or religious justification. Um, You could ask people to reconstruct, like, why do you believe, you know, anything is right or wrong? And, And most people will have a hard time yeah. explaining the justification. One of the things I actually do a lot with um, my students is, you know, um, I ask them, you know, most, I, I think this is true, most college students are pro-choice now on college campuses. I could be wrong about that. I think but that's true. I, yeah. Let's assume so, it is. Yeah. So I like to say, I like to ask them, can you explain to me what the, what um, the, Prevail, the argument in Roe v. Wade that prevailed was, that provided a justification for, um, you know, that, that the outcome of Roe v. Wade. And, and none of them can. And, and I couldn't have either if I hadn't bothered to go study it myself. You know, it was an argument about privacy. Yeah. You know, it, it, was, it was stretch it, constitutionally. Yeah. It was, gra- you know, it was grounded in this, in this idea that uh, we have a right to um, to protection against illegal search and seizure, yeah. and that's what it got more to. I mean, if your house is private, that you know, uh, no matter what's going on inside of it, you know, your your body must be private as well. It's a very, I mean, it's a very interesting argument, but there's nobody who can t- who can explain that to you. They just get the idea, you know, that they they develop. A conviction that it's wrong for other reasons, yeah. and that's per, you know that's perfect. You know, 
it's fine that the mind works that way. You know, it does work that way. So we have to kind of accept it. We don't, people aren't walking around as sort of, as you say, like they're not walking around checking out their Kant. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So we, we get these ideas. They come from certain places. They are reinforced um, and also supported by institutions. So, so ultimately we're left with habit and we're left with the support or the, dis, you know, the, the encouragement or discouragement of behaviors by institutions. And I think that's where most of us are operating most of the time. So defenders of religion would argue, and I'm, I'm not going to push this even though I'm you know, religious. I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by it. But defenders of religion would argue that, that those norms and institutions that evolve in the aftermath are unreliable and may not persist. They can switch. They can change. Um, another way to think about this is I want to live in a world where people are generous to other people who are in need and in stre- under stress, but most of us would rather let other people do the hard, heavy lifting. <laughs> right. And, and so why do, does anyone rise above their natural instinct? And so let's turn to Adam Smith, who you talk about in the book, and we've talked about a lot of the program. Um, Smith's answer was, was very different. Smith's answer was... I can't, I'm not very empathetic. It's li- very limited. Called, I think he calls it a weak read. Um, huh. Or compassion's a weak read for explaining why people are so generous. I like others. That. And he's to lean on because it's going to bend. And instead says, you know, we care about what other people think of us. And we care about our reputation. We care what an impartial spectator would say judging us. And you could argue that, that the reason parents ultimately encourage their children to be less selfish than they might naturally be is so that they'll get along well in civilized society and will be thought well of. Again, it's a different roundabout way of saying it's self-interested to be generous. What, what are your thoughts on that as a summary of Smith? I think it's great. You know, con- conscience is, is, for him, was, uh, you know, absolutely the governor of, of, of moral behavior. Um, and it, but it gets built on, I think, a, he didn't know any evolutionary biology because it didn't exist but right. he certainly believed there was a as hume did um, i mean they he, smith was probably cribbing off of human on this point but that we have a an endowment a cognitive psychological endowment that does enable us to imagine the suffering and and, and simulate the suffering of other people it probably was something that was sort of reserved for the near and the dear, the friends and kith and yeah. kin. But it's 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 good cognitive science. I, I mean, what what they're saying is, you 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 know what it's like to feel pain. It stinks. It's you don't you know what it's like to be sad, miserable, and so forth. So when you witness somebody, you know, going through something, you 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 know make a statement to yourself in some way like this person seems to be crying and then you you know you reconstruct well what what could be causing their crying well maybe it's the lot you know i know the person's wife died 2 weeks ago so then what you do is you convert this idea into what hume called an impression you know it begin it changes from just sort of a representation to a feeling and then you say, this is how I'm feeling or imagine I would feel. So this must be how that other person is feeling. So there is, so that's what, that's compassion, according to human Smith. So we, we, I think we have these twin inheritances in, um, in 
certainly in the theory of moral sentiments, where we have the impartial spectator, we have conscience with the ability to act, which gives us this ability to actively self-regulate. And then we have compassion, which is sort of less controllable, you know, and sort of embedded in their notions of right and wrong or, you know, what's right and wrong depends on what's good and bad for, for you and for other people. So it seems to me in TMS, in the theory of moral sentiments, Smith is trying to bring several of these pieces together, you know, principle-based um, self-government, if you like, and also a, 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 an endowment, a natural endowment for compassion and sympathy. So the, I think that's half right, not your view of it, but, but just the beginning of the story, because I think it's missing an important piece, which is this. So I see you crying. I won't pick you. I see someone someone crying, and uh, I know that their wife is had been ill. Uh, a, a good part of my life, and this is nothing to be proud of, but I just want to be away from that person. I don't yeah. want to be around him. I, I feel that pain. I don't like it. Uh, you know, and Paul Bloom talks about this in his book on empathy. We talked about it in the program. Listeners should go back and listen to that conversation. But I don't like that feeling. It doesn't make me want to help you. It makes me want to run away from you. I want to think about something else. If I see you on the corner, I'm going to avoid you. If I'm if I'm a bad per a normal person, not a bad person. That, that's just human. You know, so, so I think you need the next piece. And I think Smith's explanation of this. I don't know Hume, but Smith's explanation of this is is part of the story. I don't think it's the whole story. The next piece is why do I feel good alleviating your your unhappiness? Because I that's not necessary. That's not a natural response my yeah. natural response is to avoid you so to to get pleasure or satisfaction of some religious kind of spiritual kind whatever you want to call it you know and for me i'm just religion helped me with this a little bit i but meditating also helped me uh mm. becoming uh having a meditation practice i don't and i can't explain it by the way i don't it's not like i i said wouldn't it be great if i were a nicer person but i think it's made me a nicer person it's made me more aware of other people and given me more satisfaction from alleviating their struggles or empathizing with them and getting just pleasure from that because i think people and smith talks about this they they get benefit from other people just bearing some of their their ordeal even if it doesn't literally eliminate it that it's shared smith talks about so in smith's view i don't do it because it feels good I don't do the – I don't visit you on the corner and say, are you okay? Because it feels good. I do that because I think that's what I'm supposed to do mm. in the circles that I swim in, and and, and that is gives me a, a good self-image, knowing that other people think of me that way, and it does create a habituation. But the habituation requires some kind of pleasure, reward, something, and, and that part is, I think, mysterious. Um, and I would phrase it this way. Would you want to be a better person than you are now? Would you like to kind of be the mix of selfish and self-interested self and compassionate? And I, I think it's not obvious that you'd want to be a better person. Mm. Well, but way we would, you and I would define better Kantian, biblical, whatever is the whatever ethical system we were referring to. Why would I want to do that? Wouldn't it be better to be a selfish? Wouldn't I be? In other words. 
don't I want to don't I want to live in a world without a conscience? Isn't that going to be a lot more fun? Yeah. So so is is Smith's answer that we're sensitive to praise and appro you know praise and, and approbation and disapp- yeah, I mean, okay disapprove yeah approbation and opprobrium yeah okay okay <laughs> that's the other so, so 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 that oh, great yeah so that so that's his that's kind of how he solves it is we're deeply social and- yeah he says we're hardwired he talks about the the author of nature and he says meaning God is in us he he didn't know genetics but he was basically saying it's hardwired in our selves that we care about what other people think of us. And, you know, that suggests that if we can get away with something, we will. But uh, he's saying that's, you know, that pain when you go, oh, you you didn't go visit him when when Ah, his wife uh died? I go, oh, gosh, I'm a horrible person. Why wouldn't I say to my, I could say to myself, yeah, I didn't. I got to play football. I got to watch football. You you sucker. You went and visited his wife when his wife was dying. What were you thinking? (laughs) Yeah. But, but we don't feel that way. And we have we have inherited, not genetically, but culturally, a view that that's just not done. Yeah. So so how how much uh, I I don't remember uh I don't remember Smith spending a lot of time anywhere sort of I mean, he had one project, which was the psych- which was the psychology. Does does he talk anywhere about how our sort of the, the residue of culture ends up producing people who um, disapprove of your selfishness and approve of your you know your kindness? Does he talk about where those ideas came yeah. from in Western stuff? Yeah, I no. Think and so. the reason it's important is that you know in his circles, maybe that's what generated approval and disapproval. But you and I can imagine other circles where. Those are silly. Those are foolish. Yeah. He, he he was talking about his circle of friends in Scotland. You know, he's an right. armchair theorizer mostly. Is that <laughs> and yeah, and what we would call civilized men and women, uh, gentlemen, gentlewomen, whatever you, you know. In his way day, it was gentlemen. Uh, they didn't talk too much about women, but uh, we're talking about people who who respect or disapprove of our behavior. Uh and we choose, I would argue, that the ultimate ethical choice we make in, in many ways is who we choose to be in our circle. Because yeah. we're choosing the implicit judges of our behavior, and that determines what I aspire to. Right? If I have friends who are rowdy thugs, <laughs> I become a rowdy thug because that's what they respect. And if I have friends who are kind and thoughtful and giving – I tend to be more like that. Yeah, yeah, this is why as parents we worry about who our kids hang out yeah, with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because, you know, as as Judith Rich Harris talked about in her book, um, No Two Alike, we, we end up, um, you know, parents have surprisingly little direct influence, you know, uh, through... Um, through through you know, share, let's, you know, shared environmental effects. The, the things you can do for your kids... Um, that that are responsible for why you're similar in values or behavior to your kids. Um, a lot of that is genetic transmission. So um, uh, by the time kids, if, uh, I'll, I'll give you the example of religion just because it's it's fun. Um, when children are small and living in the home, uh, what we know from twin studies is that their religiosity does have an environmental component. So 
if you're going to church or synagogue on Sundays and uh, Saturdays or Sundays, Friday nights, uh, your kids are going, and that's gonna that's going to show up as a as an environmental effect. Um, if you believe in God, uh, if you engage in certain forms of religious practice, or you have you embrace certain religious ideas, that's going to look like an environmental effect. Your kids will resemble you, and that's going to look like it's coming through the environment. But once those kids leave home that apparent environmental effect goes away. And what's left is they're going their own way genetically. You know, it's, 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 it's their sort of genetic uh, affordances plus the effects of the people they surround themselves new, with. Yeah, their new environment. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's harder to track down quantitatively. Um, so we're, we're in this really interesting position, I think, as parents where we, you know, our... I think our most potent effects on our children's outcomes are going to be by trying to engineer their social environments as best we can, you know, so that they end up with, with good influences. Now that's, you know, in, in some ways that's, that's the, 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 the best we, we seem to be capable of doing, which is not bad. Um, and, and to some extent, I think that's probably what's producing the difference between, you know, villains and, um, you know, law-abiding, you know, citizens. So I want to close out this section with a, uh, a thought on how, again, how economists look at this and why I think it's misleading or wrong, um, part of a book I'm working on. So I think if you tell your kids, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. If I said to, to a parent, you know, how do you want your kids to turn out? Now, of course, we understand if you're a parent, don't really in charge of that exactly, and maybe not so much at all. But um, if you said, "What do you what do you want your children to aspire to?" Uh, most people would say, whether they mean it or not, they would say, "I aspire them to be good people." And I think they'd also say, "I want them to be happy." And I, I want to suggest that that word "happy" is a very complicated idea. That. Living by an ethical code, religious, secular, humanist, or whatever, doesn't lead to happiness in the normal way people think about it. Mm -hmm. Parties, nice car, big house. Um, pleasures. It does lead to meaning, though. And, and I think that's a different kind of happiness. And the economist would just wave his hands and say, oh, that's what I mean. Yeah, meaning's fine. Whatever gives you pleasure. Includes meaning. But I think when you draw your utility function, as, as economists do, as a function of stuff, mm -hmm. um, you're missing out on this subtle point, which is that meaning matters and is generated by – it cannot be generated by stuff. Now, you can mm -hmm. say, I don't, that doesn't speak to me. That's fine. It may not speak to you today. But I think a lot of parents and, and, and grownups who are thinking about their own lives – Aspire to a world where what gives them pleasure is meaningful, ethical things rather than stuff. And either that that could be a social norm that comes out of philosophy or religion or not sure what it is. But I think that's fundamentally what's driving a lot of this these norms and institutions that you're they're referring to. This this idea that it's honorable. And it's mm -hmm. not, but it's not just, oh, you know, people think a lot of you, so you should be a good person. It's, it's, it's about, it's tangled up in this sense of self.
Yeah, yeah. Let me go back a minute from my own education. Is, is it true that uh, in neoclassical economics, it, it's taken as sort of an article of faith that you can't know what's in people's utility functions? Oh, yeah. We, we, okay, we yeah. brag about it. We don't okay. know what floats your boat. We don't care. <laughs> okay. We just look at the demand curve slopes downward. Except okay. then we start saying, oh, and let me tell you what policies make people better off. Ah, uh, right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, how'd that leap happen? Well, because <laughs> okay. we want to be important. <laughs> we can't uh, okay. say anything about – anyway, I think it's problematic. But we don't – we pretend we, – we proudly say in the card-carrying guild that we don't know what gives people satisfaction. And it's not important. Whatever okay. it is. Okay. So, so, that, so that explains how – you get you get theorists and well, you know, researchers like Ernst Fair, for example, who, who who want to make the case that, to varying degrees, people have others' welfare in their utility functions, sure. right? Absolutely. So, so, so we can have this bundle of preferences uh, that are, in some sense, hedonically self-serving, or in you know, in some other way, self-serving. But then we can build in a parameter that's how much you regard the welfare of other people, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so um, it it seems it seems to me like that's where you'd want to place, you know, uh, that's where you'd want to place a lot of the things we're talking about today. Sure. You know, we don't know we don't know how those things get in there. You know, how, how do they? You know, how does where does that variance come from? I mean, in some ways, I think that's the project, right? That's the project you and I care about is what stuff's going in there and how yeah. did it get there. Um, so, and I, I mean, I, I kind of like that idea. I don't know what's in there. In my own research, I'll tell you what I do think is in there a lot, and it is how other people regard you. I think this is really important and underappreciated as a, as a, a moral motivation. You know, in a, in a lot of the work we've done in my lab, we've been trying to figure out, actually, you know, when people share money, for example, at, you know, the dictator game, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar with. It's this experimental economics game where you're handed a bolus of money and the experimenter says, you know, give as much as you want to this other person. There's this notional stranger out there and they're going to get whatever you send them. You could send them all of it, half of it, none of Penny. it. It's up to you. Yeah, exactly. It's up to you. And, and the canonical finding is people share, yeah. you know, even and when there's like, there's no prospect of a return benefit or gratitude or, you know, anything like that. And folks like Ernst Fair, I mean, there's a, a variety of other people working in this space. Um, uh, um, Herb Gintis would be, would be another one. Sam Bowles was another one. I mean, great economists. Um, want to attribute that behavior to some degree as an other regarding preference. But we've done a lot of work to try to take these games apart in my lab and figure out, you know, how do you get people to reduce their, their giving in a dictator game? Or how do you, another one they are really into is we seem to punish bad guys. We seem to have a taste for punishing yeah. selfish people. Yeah. Um, I, I won't bore you with the details, but we've spent a fair bit of time in my, my, in my research, in my lab, trying to create experiments where we remove any possibility that others are going to know what you do. And, and, and this is beyond the norm. Don't get me wrong. Economists have done a lot of due diligence yeah, to try sure. to remove these influences. But I've sort of devoted a big chunk of my career to really trying to remove them. So there's no way another person's going to know 
whether you're helpful or generous or whatever, punitive. And we find once you create a kind of hermetically sealed environment where, you know, research subjects just know deeply, are convinced deeply that no one's going to know their consequences of their, their, no one's going to become aware of whether they were generous or whether they punished the bad guy. They do it a lot less. They do it a lot less. Sometimes but, they don't. They end up not doing it at all. But there are still people who share. Y- yes, yes, they're that's absolutely. That's the shocking part. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, absolutely. Well, that's exactly right. This stuff doesn't go to zero, even yeah. when we do our best. So this, you know, the story I, I in part, I want to tell during my, you know, my day job when I'm, you know, not trying to write books, um, is that we have. Um, we need to recognize that um, we are really deeply motivated by people's um, approval and disapproval. Um, and it goes way deeper than um, these experimental games would leave you to lead you to believe. I want to exalt that in my work. You know, I don't want to say, well, this is just stuff we, we shouldn't, you know, this is just like, kind of fluff that should be depressing to us, you know, but to me, like, that's the gold, you know, we do want to create worlds in which people internal, you know, internalize a norm at the leftover stuff, if you like, but they also really are sensitive to, I mean, to me, this is part of becoming a civilized, socialized human being. You really do care about seeming a certain way. So, I want to. I want to, in some ways, you know, uh, re- revive that and rehabilitate that. Well, I think Adam Smith would point out that even in your hermetically sealed environment, there is one person who knows whether you shared or not, and that's yourself. And that mm-hmm. is part of your earlier point about your self identity and and your sense of your keeping consistent with your principles. All right? What kind of person am I if I only share when I know that people are watching? So I I have a sort of yeah, self right. nor- a personal norm. That I want that I want to honor. It might be hard for me if it's a lot of money, <laughs> it's, yeah. and, and I really am convinced no one's watching. And sometimes you'll hear economists in these situations say things like, um, "Well, people give they share anyway because that way later, if they're in the same, they can imagine if they were in that same situation, they'd want somebody to share with them." And a good economist then says, "Yeah, but they're not in that situation. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is just now." And and why would you? That sounds nice, but I think there's a a, a bizarre uh, sort of what we call it's a religious karmic superstition. In other words, that that first story I just told, that's the free rider problem. Yeah, I don't have to worry yeah. about that. I'll just I'll take it all. And when I'm in the other end, some sucker is going to give me a share because they feel guilty. Great. That's fantastic. Yeah. But I think. People are uneasy with that. And the question, the economist says, oh, they shouldn't be. It's irrational. But it's not exactly irrational. And I think embedded in us, you know, people, so-called rational people, whatever that means, look down on superstition. But again, if you are superstitious, if you think that, oh, if I take advantage of this guy in the dictator game, when I'm on the other end someday in life, my car broke down or I'm in trouble – you know, what comes around, what goes around, comes around or whatever it is. I mean, that's a silly statement unless you're religious. And most people don't think, and even religious people don't even necessarily believe in that. But but I, I think it, it works on us in, in a way that 
it's not quote rational in the normal sense of the word, but it helps us self-enforce those norms that we want to self-enforce. And, and I'll just close this com- this piece of the conversation by saying that, you know, recently interviewed hasn't aired yet, but uh, you know, Don Boudreau talking about James Buchanan, mm. and, and his point was that I can aspire to what I put in my utility function. So sure, uh-huh. you can shove uh, people's uh, concern for others is, is something they get pleasure from, but that's a choice. It's not something we're endowed with. And, yeah. and that's what the human enterprise is a huge part of it's about, choosing what to put in your, your utility function. And I think that's just a very deep, subtle insight. Anyway, a lot of stuff there. Sorry. Yeah, that's great. That's that's I really love that. And he's writing about this in a book about Buchanan, or was this just No, a- this is an article of Buchanan's where, where he's talking about, he says, man, meaning human beings, human beings want freedom so they can become the people they want to become. Oh, that's nice. Which is beautiful, yeah. right? And and yeah. the economist's idea of seeing us as a, a util machine, a utility robot, is sterile and wrong and, and strips away, I think, the part of, of humanity that is about aspiration and that we would call flourishing, you know, fully yeah. defined. Yeah, that's great. There's There's some wonderful psychologists who have been toiling in this vineyard for decades. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a group that, that whose theorizing goes under the label self-determination theory. And there's a lot of them out there now. Um, it's, it's a, it's a point of view that's been championed, you know, for many, 40 years, um, uh, by Ed DC and Richard Ryan. And it's great stuff. They're really trying to figure out where we get intrinsic motivation from. And, you know, that's, that's applicable in a lot of areas that's applicable in, in education, um, you know, child development, goal setting, and, and, you know, any number of, of, of endeavors, human endeavors. But what they really want to do is place, um, the regulation of behavior on a sort of, um, continuum, that goes from highly externalized, where you're just being governed by the immediate reward and punishment contingencies in your environment, uh, over to, and you can analyze people's personalities this way or their motivation in any given dilemma, uh, all the way over to um, um, the re- behavior being regulated by internalized moral principles or the desire, this swings back around to what we were talking about, or the desire for integrity. Mm-hmm. So, so there, you've got behavior that's, that's you know, I, I'm doing these things even when nobody's looking because it's important for me to be the kind of person who yeah. does these things even when nobody's looking. Okay. Um, so I think that's great stuff. Um, and they're, they're really trying to, you know, to me, it's still a hypothesis are there any people hanging out, you know, on that end of the continuum? Um, but, but, but that's how they want to kind of depict things. Um, and it ends up being, you know, what, what we know about it so far from, for example, from their work is um, you want kids in schools who are operating on that end of the continuum, you know, who are not just responding to, you know, the immediate rewards and punishments from, from teachers. So, um, yeah, integrity is important and we, we, we ought to take it more seriously as a scientific concept, I think. And I, I should just mention that you know my first published paper in economics was putting people's other people's well-being in your utility function. So I understand that as a as a technique. Uh, I just think most economists 
have trouble doing that in an artful and fully meaningful way. And I mean, I didn't then for sure. I, I had a incredibly sterile uh, model of, of charitable giving in that work. Um, was this an analytic model? Yeah. Trying to okay. explain why I was looking at the trade-off between government spending on charity and, and, and uh, spending by, on, by private charities. And I came to the conclusion that you mentioned in the book, which is most things we call charity in the United States aren't charity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they're, they're not aid to the poor. Uh, and my yes. argument in that book was that, in that article, was that the government's chosen a level of, of aid to the poor that makes it not rewarding people to do because they've already chosen a very high level. Uh, and so we give our charitable giving to so-called charitable giving to education, uh, religion, which is about half, <laughs> uh, which is pretty self non. And there's some charity within religious giving, but it's not so much. Um, and the, the part that we do to help poor people is to help poor people who aren't helped by government, you know, soup kitchens and other for people who are homeless who can't get a, a mail, a check in the mail and so on. Um, but I just want to, for, for listeners out there, I mean, I'm very aware that there are ways that we can salvage utility theory by by putting stuff in there. I just think the, the way it comes out at the undergraduate level and for, at most graduate levels is just, no, 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 it's stuff. <laughs> it's stuff's what people care about. Income. And that's just, uh-huh. I think that's just wrong. Um, Interesting. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I want to close by talking about, um, I, I, I'm going to summarize what I see as the, as the last part of your book, which is that the amount of humanitarian aid has grown tremendously over time, certainly compared to, say, 1,500, uh, that there's a lot of resources devoted to helping people other than ourselves through governments, through private charities, and so on. And I just – I was surprised you didn't talk about how futile most of that is. <laughs> and, and I think you, you have to um, – if we're thinking about what motivates the giving and help to the poor, you have to talk about its ineffectiveness. So, you know, the standard way an economist likes to say this is that Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett's done more for the world than Mother Teresa. They're, um, or the way I would describe it, uh, the capitalist reforms of China has done more for the world than the World Bank in its entire all of its activities in trying to help poor people uh, that we're not very good at it and we should care about results. And I know you do. So how yeah. do you respond to that? I, I, I think most humanitarian efforts, I'm not talking about visiting the, the poor guy whose wife passed away. Cause I think that that has a big impact, but the most organized top down efforts, pretty mixed bag. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I completely agree. Um, you know, in the book, I talk about um, um, a really interesting few years in the uh, early and mid '80s when um, a lot of rock stars got really interested yeah. in trying to deal with social, um, you know, social ills both here and around the world. And I remember I was actually a teenager, you know, during the time of Live Aid or uh, you know. Um, um, uh, you know, uh, farm aid. aid. There's a whole bunch Far- of them. Yeah, yeah, right. And I remember being so inspired. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a time when rock music. It's just hard for people, I think, to get. You know, my children would would not re- understand <laughs> this. You know, by listening to the radio. But like, 
you know, these bands and these artists really cared. You know, I think about Peter Gabriel or U2 or, you know, any of these bands, you know, the police, you know, uh, David Bowie, like a lot of these people in the 80s really were developing an awareness of sort of the, the world and, um, the, you know, the wider world and the extent of, of hunger and, you know, uh, political prisoners. And it was a time, I, I mean, it was such a heady time. I remember, you know, teenagers getting interested in, you know, figuring out like, how, what can we do? It was like a, a, a Woodstock in a way, but it wasn't about, you know, exploring your inner world. It was about exploring your yeah. the outer world, the wider world of poverty and, and you know, yeah. suffering. Um, so this led to, a, you know, this massive transatlantic concert experience called Live Aid. When all of these rock bands from from you know the, the U.S. and from from Europe were performing simultaneously, it was kind of this crazy event. Um, you know, they raised millions and millions of dollars uh, to deal with famine. Um, per, you know, particularly famine in in Africa. Um, the effort was kind of um, really kicked off by an awareness of um, uh, an Ethiopian food crisis. Yeah. So um, lots of effort. People were opening their checkbooks, trying to help get food to Ethiopia, you know, other countries in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere that were really struggling. But once we did the autopsy on these efforts, what we realized is what was going on in Ethiopia was not a famine caused by, um, you know, caused by lack of rainfall or, you know, by, by drought. It was largely a, a, you know, and Amartya Sen talks about this a lot. That most famines are not due to, you know, to to weather and climate. They're due to mismanagement. They're they're due to food not get being got, you know, not getting to where it needs to go. So I I look and and also most of so most of the food we send, you know, it ends up rotting on docks, you know, at the Red Sea, or it ends up in the mouths of soldiers, you know, of of a militia. Right. I mean, so by some estimates, 90% of that aid, that food aid that went to Ethiopia, ended up going to what came to be called the wheat militias. You know, these were militias that were being paid in, you know, either in the grain we were sending over there or the grain that, you know, the money that they made by selling it on the black market. So it is, so I'm with you, Russ. I mean, it is really, to me, that's, that's a very sobering lesson in how, hard it is to do good because we often have such poor information about what's going on on the ground you know it's it's so aid can has the potential to be very inefficient um we just we just often don't have the information um to to do it well um and we are often i mean this is not going to come as any surprise to you but we often can't see the indirect effects you know yeah i pick it on economists throughout this hour but that's one thing we're pretty good at yeah we're, exactly. worried, is worrying about that whether we get don't know exactly what it is but we're sensitized i think one of the advantages of economic education is it sensitizes you to unintended consequences and so that's good absolutely absolutely so there's no doubt that we've spent a lot of money um that that didn't have impact um and, and this led to a period in the late 90s when individuals and countries really kind of had a, developed the kind of compassion fatigue. Yeah. You know, are we, are we just dumping money into a black, you know, into a, a black hole where it's not, you know, helping anybody, not making the world a better place, not encouraging development. So 
Um, this led to the Millennium Development Goals. You know, at the end of the you know at the end of the the twentieth uh, century, when the United Nations tried to get serious about you know really making a big push of cash. Um, they spent a lot of money, not nearly as much as they expected, and a lot of people wondered whether that was a failure. Um, whether we, you know whether the millennium, all of the money that was raised in in pursuit of these eight or so millennium development goals about developing in the you know encouraging development in the global south, did anything. It actually looks like, um, by the best counterfactual models you can you can draw given the data we have, that they did do some good. You know, they reduced, um, they reduced maternal deaths and neonatal deaths. Um, they, um, we, we, um, it, there were um, uh, many, many, you know, uh, per- perhaps half a billion people raised out of, uh, raised above the, abs- you know, the um, um, poverty line, um, extreme poverty line of like a dollar ninety five a day. Um, so it's hard to evaluate, but very difficult to evaluate, you know? I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, the, the information is not always great and the evaluation is very problematic as well. It's hard to know how to draw up the counterfactuals. Yeah. So you look at, the, you know, I look at the research and, you know, and, and in um, a chapter of The Kindness of Strangers um, called um, The Second Humanitarian um, Big Bang, um, pardon me, the, the uh, second poverty enlightenment, which is how I describe these last few decades of the 20th century. We did try to start getting good at measuring, you know, and, and figuring out what's, what works and what doesn't work. But, it, you know, it's, it's really hard. And you, you fast forward to where we are now, and the UN has come up with the, sta- the sustainable development goals. And that is a... <laughs> I think there's like 167 objectives in this list of sustainable <laughs> development goals. You know, it's, it's not it's, enough. It's, a, it's not enough, right? You know, it's just forty. Yes, exactly. Get to a good round number, and that is a mess. That is a big mess because if you can't track, you know, if it's hard to know whether getting grain to Ethiopia is going to re- reduce famine, if if that's hard to know. How are you going to track 167 objectives? So this is tough stuff. I'm I'm really a fan of the economist Bjorn Lomborg uh, in Copenhagen, who has spent quite a lot of time developing what he calls the Copenhagen Consensus, which was a really systematic attempt to uh, do a benefit cost analysis on all of these Millennium Develop uh, Sustainable Development Goal objectives. It's so eye opening because they they. They, they realize that, you know, a lot of these, these interventions or a lot of these goals aren't going to pay their way. Yeah. You're, you're not, you're not going to get a dollar. You're going to, you're not going to get a dollar of welfare back for a dollar you spend on it. So there are some things that have huge bang for their buck, but a lot that, you know, if your goal is to make the world a better place than, and, and not just to look busy, you want to think about a second time. Yeah, I'm very I'm very appreciative of Bjorn's uh, contrarian nature, and I think he's added a lot to that conversation. And he was on the program talking about some of that. Um, but I do think there's a risk, right? It, it, it's good to quantify things, but you do have to remember that not everything can be quantified. I think that's hard to remember. Mm. I think about Chris Arnotti, who was on the program talking about his book, Dignity. And you know, he spent a lot of time among 
what we would call down and out people, drug addicts and others who who are can't find work either because they're drug addicts or they couldn't find work so they became drug addicts. They're in parts of America that have been, quote, left behind economically. And often people move historically. That's what they do um, when they get left behind. When a place gets left behind, the people go somewhere else where it's yep. where it's thriving. And we've talked etern- interminably on this program about why people don't move. But he, are there barriers to moving because of economic change? Is there barriers to moving because rent control and, and mm. zoning has made it expensive? Hard to find places to live. Um, but he identifies something I think is very important that, that economists never think about uh, and policymakers don't want to think about, which is a lot of people like to be close to where they grew up. Now, I'm not one of those people. Chris admits he's not one of them. A lot of us who are in the educated classes who write about public policy left our home, went to the best university we could get to, took the best job we could get, didn't worry about whether we we're close to our parents, and just were kind of self-centered in that way or didn't value those a lot of ways to talk about it, but I think a sense of home and a sense of self, uh, a sense of place, excuse me, is undervalued. And and if we only look at so-called economic benefits, we don't. And by economic benefits, I mean measurable benefits. We lose some something there. You know, I'm not going to. I think the Chinese evolution of their economy that's brought hundreds of millions of people out of poverty is one of the most extraordinary and important changes of, of human history. But I, I wouldn't want to pretend that, that that's all good because they're all richer. <laughs> I mean, rich, yeah. rich is good, but, you know, they, they changed their lives. They left their communal, closer, familial place in the countryside and moved to a more urban environment. And God bless them. Everybody should be free to do that. But I wouldn't want to make that a goal of policy because then we'll have a higher standard of living. Higher standard of living is great if that's what people want. It's not always what people want. Yeah, I, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, actually, myself. And it, it, it does seem like we, you guys, you know, and gals assume that the way you get a market that works well is if if people can take their stuff to where it's valued. Yeah. You, you know, and I guess in the in the realm of human capital, that's not, there's no exception to that. You know, people, it's it's going to be through the free flow of human capital that that you also realize that value right yeah so but so i'm I mean, all for gen- freedom that, i'm yeah, all for oh, freedom I, I just don't think we ought to be steering people i think it's a huge mistake to have goals any goals <laughs> the idea that the world should not not <clears throat> that, that was badly said individuals can, can have goals but the idea that the world should have a goal by 2038, we uh, should have X, Y, Z, because all the goals conflict, especially when there's 167. Yeah. And, and then you got no way to trade off against them. And, and so political mechanisms don't do that well. Uh, even individuals struggle to do it sometimes. I don't know. I'm just yeah. making the general point that I think the natural urge to, to make this quote scientific has is, is got issues that I think are often forgotten. What do, what do you think about the notion of freedom, I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot, but what do you, what do you think about the notion that of, of freedom as capabilities? You know, bu- the, way, the way you build f- yeah, freedom or, or liberty within individuals is just to increase the range of things they are capable of doing. Like, does that work for you? Well, you know, I, I think Martha Nussbaum was on the program talking about that 
uh, was a while back. And and I, in the abstract, it's a great idea. Obviously, you know, we can think about freedom as a lack of restraint. But obviously, the more capabilities you have, the more options you have, the more choice you have, and uh. and that's a part of the human the human experience. But again, I think the the this is my individualistic bias. I uh. I think that's a choice that we as individuals make. The idea that we should make it for people, that we should have a goal of expanding capabilities, that we should have training programs just to pick the most narrow definition of capability. I mean, I want my kids to be, I want them to appreciate classical music and ballet and art and poetry and the American musical and a great novel. And mm. those all take work, by the way. They're not just easy. They're not like candy. They take yeah. some investment. And when we think about that in a more general sense of how you live your life, really uncomfortable with the idea of saying that it should be a public policy goal to figure out how to give people, quote, more capability. Well, okay, give yeah. people more freedom to choose those capabilities. So certainly, I don't want to give them a lousy education through a school system that that's you know inadequate. I do think there are policy implications of of the claim, but I think there's a tendency if we're not careful to make it a, a more of an engineering problem, which I think we should stay away from. I I I, res I respect that, and I think I think I agree agree that it, uh, there's a hazard there you know, almost all the time. I, I'd be curious to know what you think about Lomborg's biggest conclusion, which is that the biggest bang for your buck you're going to get is by, is by liberalizing trade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I think he came to the estimate um, that something, you know, for every dollar you spend on liberalizing trade, you, you get millions of dollars back in, 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 in increased welfare utility if that's what you prefer and the reason for that is you you can liberalize trade by just ripping up a piece of paper or signing a piece of paper you know they um because all all we're talking about is barriers to trade um and 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 lifting those barriers i think Does, is that is that the kind of hands-off intervention that that you you would prefer just allowing people you, you know not prescribing hey yeah. i know how to make you better off but instead to say, I'm just going to move some impediments to you doing what you think is going to make you yeah. better off. And I, I, I'm a big fan of the free choices that people make in, you know, in, in molding their destiny as they see fit, giving them the maximum freedom to find work, which is tape, tailored to their skills. I think the, I, I think the, my disagreement with that is the bang for the buck idea. I, I, mm. I, again, that's a natural thought. It's not a bad thought. But I don't want to use that only. And I, I would emphasize the idea that, you know, give us the freedom to choose my path and let emergent order markets, what we would call markets, be fluid and dynamic as much as possible to match me with someone who would value what I do. Um, the problem with, I think, public policy today in 2021 is that there's so many pieces of that equation that have been ruined. I mean, just the most obvious example is the one we mentioned earlier, the zoning issue. Yeah. I can't easily move to a city because the restrictions on uh, what is allowed to be sold to me have to be a certain size. And therefore, right. I can't choose to make a trade-off between location and the size of my dwelling. 
I think that's a terrible infringement on, and you could say it's good intention. Oh yeah, yeah it'd be terrible. People would be exploited to live in these tiny hovels. But I think that's a misunderstanding of how what makes life important and valuable and flour- let people flourish. I think we should be free to make those trade-offs. And there's so many areas like that where we've so ruined the natural feedback loops that that serve people's aspirations that the sort of standard policy descriptions don't work so well. Healthcare would be another example. You know, the labor market's so ruined by the healthcare mess that that decades of policy interventions have done. I'm not saying we should go to no, you know, no government involvement, though be my first thought. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but but the current system, the idea of saying, well, let's just fix it over here, which normally might be a good idea. I mean, this is called second best theory in, in you know in economics. Um it, it, it's it's so it's such a mess right now. So mm. so I don't I don't have those sort of standard uh, reactions I'd say used to have when I was when I was younger. You know, I still call myself a free trader, but I think if you have free trade, you don't have some other things like a good education system. Interesting, it's problematic for certain people and and not others, and that's not so healthy. And I think the the trickiest part of all this, and we should probably close on this, is that. I'm really pretty confident that when my friend's crying and I mm. give him a shoulder, I'm making the world a better place. Yeah. Um, and I think the writing of the check is so much easier and dramatic. And, you know, people want to join a movement or be an activist or, you know, fund this solution. And I think we ought to spend more time reading to people who can't read well and helping them be whatever they, whatever makes their heart sing. Um, you know, open the door for somebody carrying their groceries through it. I, I just think those things are, as I get older, I find them much more um, meaningful and more likely to be actually helping. So yeah, I still yeah. give. I think you should, I'm not. It's not an excuse. It's not like oh, that nothing works. So I just don't have to give anything. I don't believe that, but I do believe that that we don't spend enough time thinking about how to help the people around us. And I don't mean do gooders, being a do gooder, saying oh that person needs this, I need to. Being there for them when they need us in whatever way it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I would, I would be, you know, very eager to try to, you know, avoid us thinking of um, these as um, usually ex- mutually exclusive. Right. Obviously, you know, and and I, I think, you know, I, I am taken with the effective altruism movement, at, at least as a as a basic sort of governing principle for figuring out how to the questions we should be asking when, when we're, when we're thinking about charitable giving at, at some remove from the people we're helping um, where we can't know the, we can't know the effects. It, it seems to me that the right questions at least are, is it going to help? Does, yeah. does this organization have the, the capacity to, to convert my whatever thousand dollar check into more, you know, a thousand dollars or more of welfare for other people? Um, it, it, it seems to me to be one of the right questions to ask. Um, you know, it's this, it's the same question that would govern, you know, I, I think explains why you might want to cut back on your meat consumption. Ultimately, you know, at least as an ethical matter, the pleasure I get can't possibly be higher than this, you know, the suffering that this animal had to incur, you know, to put the chicken on my plate. Um, I, 
you know, I, I do find that really compelling as at least the kind of questions I want to be asking myself. And I think we should be asking ourselves when we're giving it some distance. Um, but that can be a spiritual or a, a matter of integrity too, is just saying like, uh, you know, I want to do the most good for the most, you know, do the most good I can. A la, you know, Peter Singer or something like that. Well, but that's, that, that shouldn't, um, I, I know that's fraught. I know that's very, very difficult to do. But those seem to me to be really important questions to be trying to 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 exercise my way through. Yeah, we have a lot of episodes on that. We'll put links to to that. Uh, it's a whole other conversation which we will return to, Michael. Um, it is fraught. I think it is the right question. I just don't always think they're giving the right answer. But I'm glad they're asking the question. That's that's. I think it's incredibly important. Mm. My guest today has been Michael McCullough. His book is The Kindness of Strangers. Michael, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me. It's great. Take care. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.